Um, well, let me say a quick prayer and we'll begin. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the way that it um, it reveals to us our sinfulness and our need and above all reveals your sufficiency and your goodness to us uh, revealed in Jesus. In his name, amen. All right, well, um, there were Bibles out if you grabbed one, good. If not, if you want to grab one, that may be, may be advantageous. I'll, I'll admit I'm actually going to read a different translation, but they're close enough that... Um, that you should be able to, to get the gist of it. Um, so that'll be in mind. Well, good morning, and thanks for thanks for coming. Obviously, we always have a lot of a lot of really top-notch classes to choose from, so I'm always grateful if anybody shows up um, <laughs> um, because you're not obligated, and, and that's 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 appreciated. Uh, today and, and next Sunday, I want to take a look at Romans 5, which for me is uh, meaningful, but also really deep and and complicated and difficult. So. Um, forgive in advance, please, any any shortcomings, um, because this is this is heavy stuff. Um, and Gil and I were talking talking about this a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it, it's something that it's always helpful to retread, simply because it never seems to to get old. Um, there's there's obviously an, an awful lot of depth here. Uh, thematically, today I'll, I want to talk about the idea of reconciliation. And and once I once I wrote most of this out and kind of did an outline and, and some preliminary preliminary notes. I got to thinking that I frankly don't say enough about reconciliation. I'm just saying an awful lot about sin and God's anger. But um, hopefully I'll, I'll wrap that up um, sufficiently enough. But I want to read the whole chapter of Romans 5. And, and there's only a little bit of it that I'm going to I'm going to focus on today. But it's it's just a brief 21 verses that go pretty quick. So let me, let me read that. Um, so Romans 5, let's, let's read through that and, and see what, what we have there. Starting in verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows us love for us, in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was given before the law was given. I'm sorry, sin was indeed in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who were sinning, even over those whose whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. 
For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the, three, and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That is Romans 5. Um, just throw this out there because I, I welcome distractions and interruptions. Any, those of you who, who spent more time here than, than I have, any, any initial thoughts or, or significance that you find here? Like I said, this is, this is awful deep water. Just, just a little bit, yes. The, the thought occurred to me, and, and I, I'm, I'm entirely grateful to be in a church that, that, that follows a liturgy and a lectionary, but you, you see a passage like that and you understand how churches that do uh, kind of expository preaching can spend six years in one book of the Bible. Because you, you, could, you could probably do three or four sermons on one or two verses there um, per, you know, per, per section. Um, Paul says an awful... Uh, uh, Right. If you wanted to push that button further, and, and, and I'm, I won't, but I'll throw this out there. It doesn't even say anything about us asking for it. I don't. I mean, there's there's a lot that could be said there, and I'll just kind of let that thread hang. But um, absolutely nothing you've done to deserve it. There's not a prescription on how one might get there. No, no 12 steps or take two of these and come back next week. Well, I wanted to look mostly at the, um, and I got away from my passage here, mostly at just the first couple of verses. Um, because of that, that notion of reconciliation is, is where, where I want to put most of our focus. But I want to flip, flip around something that, that Paul says in verse 1. Because in verse 1, Paul says that, through, that since we've been justified by faith, and, and by faith alone, uh, coming on the heels of, of Reformation Day that our, our Presbyterian friends no doubt celebrated, um, you can flip that around though and say that because we've been justified by faith, we have peace. What Paul is implying then is without faith, we don't have peace with God. And I want to talk a little bit about that separation that comes without that peace. Um, because Paul's underlying suggestion here is that without faith, we do not have peace with God. And instead, our circumstance with God is, is more one of enmity and strife and discord, uh, disagreement, even, I mean, to use the exact opposite of peace, even war between, between us and God, apart from Christ. And I, and I want that to hover over and, and make sure that we understand it in that context. And so... Uh, you know, I got to thinking a little bit about you know why is it that we're at war with God? What what it, what has made us enemies of God? And because Paul will use that word in various passages, um, and, and I use the um, 
the ESV Study Bible has this great app for my outdated iPhone. We're getting new ones this week, um, which themselves are already outdated, but um, <laughs> you know, they were only 99 cents each. Um, but I think the apps will actually upgrade because we stopped getting upgrades on our old iPhones. Um, but the ESV app is fantastic, and um, it, it, it threw me over to, to 2 Corinthians 5, um, and, and verses 11 through 21 also kind of hit on this idea uh, of, of reconciliation. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but just, you know, if you want to kind of jot that down, those, those two passages, both chapters 5 in, in Romans and 2 Corinthians, really overlap well this notion of reconciliation and being brought together with God. But Paul hammers the idea that our sinfulness is what's made us enemies of God. Um, you know, we, we say in the Lord's Prayer, we say in our liturgy, the, the idea of a trespass against God, that we have violated something. Um, and, and I like the idea of trespassing a, a lot. I remember growing up, and, and even the commentaries I looked at, a lot about sin is kind of missing the mark and I think that's that's true and good but maybe, and maybe it's just where I am right now in life but I think the idea of, of a trespass in terms of feminine I've stepped over some line and crossed into something is is helpful the missing the mark is good too because it also helps me realize I'm not good enough which is important but the idea that I've actually kind of stepped over a line and done something I ought not to have done um, is is at least today, I may, I may feel different tomorrow, but today anyway, it, it, it tends to have a lot of significance. Um, and, and, and Paul really goes to the idea that sin is a violation of God's holiness, um, and gloomy as it sounds on, on a very overcast day, um, it makes us deserving recipients of his wrath, again, apart from Christ, and this is kind of our, our condition. Um, I kind of got to thinking that that's something we talk a lot about in, in Advent. We're, we're only a, you know, a couple of weeks away from the start of Advent. Is this idea that um, prior to Christ's coming, that this was this was our condition, and this is something that we even kind of dwell on uh, a little bit in that time, in, in that period of, of the church calendar, where you know this is this is this is our our, our situation. These are our circumstances. Um, we even see that in a lot of our hymns. I mean, in Latin, the idea of God's wrath, um, and somebody who knows Latin can correct me on this because I'm probably off a little bit. The, uh, the Dies Irae, which is translated in English as the Day of Wrath or the Day of Burning. Uh, I believe even some of our Advent hymns kind of have that as one of their one of their original titles. Uh, Wesley's hymn, Lo, He Comes With Clouds Descending, is even kind of categorized in that context. And you'll find a lot of um, classical or sacred pieces that, that fit that notion. Uh, I believe Mozart did a little bit with that uh, as well. And, and the medieval church would, would do that both at Advent but also um, in turn with, with, with their uh, with, with requiems and, and, and other pieces in, in, in the church. Um, and the, it's the idea that God is a God of, of judgment and wrath because of, of our sin as a violation of his holiness. Even even Christmas songs like Joy to the World deal with this notion of a curse being defeated, um, which, which again reinforces the idea that without Christ there is a curse that is present. There's um, kind of like in Harry Potter. I mean, there, there's a snake that needs its head cut off uh, a little bit. And again, Joy to the World kind of hints at that as well. Um, and one of his, com- I can't remember, and I wrote all this down, but I couldn't remember if it was in, in um, his commentary in Romans or in his really important book, The Cross of Christ. John Stott uh, had a really good description of this. He said, we were God's enemies. This certainly means that we cherished a deep-seated hostility to God, a resentment to his authority. But we cannot be satisfied with the notion that the hostility was entirely on our side and not at all on God's. Meaning that we, it's, it, it is a two-way street in that we ourselves... Um, have, have, have done things, but that God himself has what, what Stock called a holy hatred of sin. Uh, I thought that was a really, a really good phrase. Um, and that if it's a holy hatred of sin, it's a, it's, a, it's a hatred that God holds that is entirely justified. 
Um, sin is a violation of his, his character. It's a violation of his created order. And so his anger is, is entirely justified in, um, in, in Stott's phrasing. That, that God himself is, is, is angry at our sin um, and that we've got this back and forth relationship. Um, Jason, would we, would we call this a dialectic? Uh, I think that would be fair. Where, um, where there's this kind of conversation where we're sinning and God's mad about it. And maybe it's a chicken and egg situation, but they're both right there. Um, and well, it's not a chicken and egg situation because in the, in the original, God is holy and he, he exists before the foundation of the world. But for a very long time, this has been our, this has been our conversation. Um, and in the middle of that, Christ is going to step in and rearrange things, which is, is, is the gospel is going to start having a conversation instead of, instead of just holy God and, and filthy sinners. The gospel is going to, going to rearrange that. Um, but at our core, this is, this is our condition, is one of, of strife. Um, first and foremost with God, but that begins to manifest itself because through, originating with that strife, we find ourselves having strife with, with everything else. We, we have strife with with our families, um, our spouses, our children, our extended family, you know, Thanksgiving's on the way. Um, <laughs> um, we, we, we have not had that. We had a great, a great time with our families yesterday, so if they're listening to this a week later, that's not what I'm getting at. I'm just trying to connect with my audience. Um, uh, but, you know, with, with, with everybody else we come in contact with, coworkers, with random strangers in, in traffic, with ourselves, um, uh, the, we have a really great theater department at the high school where I teach, and um, they did a, a kind of an updated version of Hamlet the other day. And uh, I didn't get to go to the whole the whole play, but I stepped into the auditorium for just a minute. It was just in time for Hamlet to do this very very famous soliloquy. Um, and the and the young man who, who who played Hamlet really did a fine job. In case any of my students are listening to this, um, <laughs> which they may, um, but. Uh, you know, there, I noticed that the, the, the famous soliloquy has all these, these phrases that have really seeped into the English language, that have really shaped the way we talk. But there's the, the, obviously the famous line, to thine own self be true. And I think of that vis-a-vis -vis Paul, where obviously Paul would probably kind of raise his hand in the back room and say, really, Shakespeare, are you, are you sure about that? Um, because obviously if, if, we, if we acknowledge our sinfulness at its core, being true to our own self is problematic. Um, and the movie, uh, the last, if anybody's seen The Last Days of Disco, and if you're a Mockingbird fan, it's a movie that gets talked about an awful lot. The director, Whit Stillman, is, um, is famous for doing these, these movies that, um, kind of like, like Seinfeld uh, or Woody Allen movies, are very, very heavy on dialogue. And, and Stillman, um, being um, an original wasp, um, in fact, I think his, it was his godfather who, termed the, who, who coined the phrase wasp um, for, um, for older New England um, preppy types, uh, and in fact, that's kind of his his whole his whole shtick with his movies. But one of his characters in the Last Days of Disco, who is dealing with a crisis um, uh, of, of pretty significant proportions, gets at this idea of of being true to yourself. I'm going to read the, the quote here. You can look it up on YouTube. And the movie itself is very 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 good. I believe it streams on Netflix or um, it's on sale at, at Barnes and Noble this month the, um, for uh, twenty dollars. I saw that online the other day. But this is what the, the character, uh, kind of an egotistical character named Des McGrath, says to one of his friends. He says, you know that Shakespearean admonition, to thine own self be true? It's premised on the idea that thine own self is something pretty good, being true to which is commendable. But what if thine own self is not so good? What if it's pretty bad? Would it be better in that case not to be true to thine own self? See, that's my situation. And, and at its core, he's, he's starting to understand, uh, as, as he does really throughout the movie, and this is a guy who is... Um, 
fully aware of his sinfulness, but actually reveling in it all the same. Uh, if you watch the movie, but he understands this is towards the end of the movie when he's hitting kind of a crisis point. He realizes something here is not adding up. I can't be true to who I am because who I am is pretty rotten. Um, he says also earlier in the movie that um, we, 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 this is it's, it's dealing with the disco period. He and his friends often get accused of being yuppies, and he says, young, upwardly mobile, and professional, these are good things. I should want to be these things, but in fact, I'm not, which in a sociological phrase that that the, it kind of gets at the Romans idea that even even Dean Limehouse was preaching on this morning, the, you know, the things I want to do, I don't do, and not that we should all strive to be yuppies, but he's, he's kind of wrestling with this idea of there's something better than the situation I'm stuck in. Um, and so I, I want to, you know, want to move beyond that. He probably doesn't quite realize his need for Christ, although other characters in the movie actually do, um, but, but he understands that there's some kind of conflict, some inner turmoil that exists. Uh, and what we as believers can know from, from Paul's writing is that all of that is ultimately going to be rooted in, in the fact that he is a sinner who, apart from, from faith in, in Christ, um, given and not merited, is, is going to be this, this, this condition uh, with, with God. Any, any thoughts so far about if I've said anything uh, of any significance? If I haven't, that's okay. Did have another example I wanted to wanted to look at um, from um, the novel *Brideshead Revisited*, Evelyn Waugh's um, post World War II novel that was apparently, according to to, to real devotees of, of Waugh, it's not his best, but I, I, I liked it better than anything else I've read by him. Um, and the, there was a, a TV series that Jeremy Irons starred in in the early 80s that um, it wasn't done by the BBC; it was among one of the other British companies, but also really fantastic. They've got it for. Uh, you can rent it from the Mountain Brook Library and, and buy it for only 40 or 50 bucks at Barnes & Noble. Um, there's a new version coming out as well. Really? After the first year. Oh, fantastic. Just, uh, theater release. So, yeah, oh, there you go. FYI. Okay, good deal. Um, that will be worth watching also. Um, it, it's really a fantastic uh, fantastic story. And, and, and Waugh himself was Catholic, and so there's some, some Catholic kind of stuff that hangs over it. But as a picture of grace and really as a reality of sin, I think it works well. Um, from any ecumenical standpoint, um, as long as it's uh, theologically orthodox, um, which Wah himself was. Um, well, let me set this up a little bit. The, the circumstance here, the, the, if you've, if you've, you know, if this is old news if you've read the book or seen any of any of the uh, the, the, the adaptations. But the the narrator of the of the story um, is a guy named Charles Ryder, who is in in, in his time at Oxford befriends. Um, a family of, of old money English Catholics who are kind of on their last legs financially, um, are, are kind of, and, and Charles himself is kind of a middle class, uh, upper middle class student who really attaches himself to, to the luxury and to the um, peculiar eccentricities of this family um, while never in fact bracing the Catholicism. All the members of the family embrace Catholicism in various ways, some very openly, some kind of subtly. Um, but they're, they're, that's all there, and he kind of kind of stands apart at, at a distance. And, and after Oxford, he kind of drifts in and out of the family circle. And late in life, not late in life, but later in the book, excuse me, while he's he's been married about 10 years, um, he's on a cruise with his wife, uh, and he and his wife are, are on the outs. He, he gathers that she's been unfaithful. He's he's dreadfully unhappy in the marriage, and he runs across Julia, who is the the older daughter uh, of the of the family. Uh, the Marchman family, who lives uh, at, at this uh, estate known as Brideshead. 
and he and Julia uh, strike up an affair. Um, Julia her, herself is married, um, and her marriage has already been controversial, in keeping in mind it's a Catholic family, when it's revealed that her husband, um, on, the, on the eve of her wedding, she finds out that her husband had been previously divorced back in Canada. Uh, he's a member of parliament, and the, the oldest brother in the family, who is a very devout and rather obnoxious um, Catholic, a real stickler for the rules, um, he thinks he's getting in based on his merit. Um, it, it you know, kind of throws this in her face a little bit and then lets it go. But later on, he brings up the fact that, that Julia and Charles are, um, to use this phrase, living in sin. So this is a, kind of a lengthy passage, but the, the word from her brother about living in sin brings Julia to this kind of breaking point uh, in terms of, of the reality of where she is. But I, I, I want to read this and, and just kind of note the way in which her sin does, in fact, she, she when she acknowledges her sin, she realizes that there is a, a gulf of separation between she and God, first and foremost. But then she starts to, to kind of subtly look at all the ways in which it has separated her from everybody else um, in her life. So um, her brother has said all this, and um, he, what, what sets this up lastly is her brother announces he's getting married. Um, and, and Julia says, well, to, to her brother, who's known as Bridie, named after Brideshead, said, you need to bring, you know, bring your fiancé here to the house. We want to meet her. And Brideshead explains why he won't do this. He says, oh, yes, I don't doubt that, meaning she wants, her, wants the fiancé to visit. The difficulty is quite otherwise. He finished his port, refilled his glass, and pushed the decanter towards me. You must understand that Beryl is a woman of strict Catholic principle fortified by the prejudices of the middle class. I couldn't possibly bring her here. It is a matter of indifference whether you choose to live in sin with Rex, her husband, or Charles, or both. I have, been, I have always avoided inquiry into the d details of your menage, but in no case would Beryl consent to be, her, be your guest. Julia rose. Why, you pompous ass, she said, stopped and turned towards the door. And she goes on and leaves, and, and her brother continues talking. Charles interrupts and says, Bridie, what a bloody offensive thing to say to Julia. Bridie, there was nothing she should object to. I was merely stating a fact well known to her. And Julia leaves the house. Charles goes and look, goes looking for her and finds her outside. And he essentially says, why do you care what he says? He goes, I don't. It doesn't matter. It's just the shock. Don't laugh at me. In two years of our love, which seemed a lifetime, I had not seen her so moved or felt so powerless to help. How dare he speak to you like that, I said. The cold-blooded old humbug. But I was, failing in her I was failing her in sympathy. No, she said, it's not that. He's quite right. They know all about it, Bridie and his widow. They've got it in black and white. They bought it for a penny at the church door. You can get anything there for a penny, in black and white, and nobody to see that you pay, only an old woman with a broom at the other end, rattling round the confessionals, and a young woman lighting a candle at the Seven Dolores. Put a penny in the box or not, just as you like. Take your tract. There you've got it in black and white. All in one word, too. One little, flat, deadly word that covers a lifetime. Living in sin. Not just doing wrong as I did when I went to America. Doing wrong, knowing it is wrong, stopping doing it, forgetting. That's not what they mean. That's not Bridie's Pennyworth. He means just what it says in black and white. Living in sin, with sin, by sin, for sin, every hour, every day, year in, year out. Waking up with sin in the morning, seeing the curtains drawn on sin, bathing it, dressing it, clipping diamonds to it, feeding it, showing it round, giving it a good time, putting it to sleep at night with a tablet of dial if it's fretful. 
always the same, like an idiot child, carefully nursed, guarded from the world. Poor Julia, they say. She can't go out. She's got to take care of her little sin. A pity it ever lived, they say, but it's so strong. Children like that always are. Julia's so good to her little mad sin. He goes on and talks about what it's like to, to be there talking with her and how the a lovely evening has otherwise been ruined. And Julia continues, past and future, the years when I was trying to be a good wife in the cigar smoke while time crept on and the counters clicked on the backgammon board and the man who was dummy at the men's table filled the glasses. When I was trying to bear his child, torn in pieces by something already dead, putting him away, forgetting him, finding you, the past two years with you, all the future with you, all the future with or without you, war coming, world ending, sin. A word from so long ago, from Nanny Hawking, stitching by the hearth and the nightlight burning before the sacred heart. Cordelia, that's her sister, and me with the catechism in Mummy's room before luncheon on Sundays. Mummy carrying my sin with her to church, bowed under it in the, la- in the black lace veil in the chapel, slipping out with it in London before the fires were lit, taking it with her through the empty streets where the milkman's ponies stood with their forefeet on the pavement, mummy dying with my sin eating at her, more cruelly than her own deadly illness. Mummy dying with it, Christ dying with it, nailed hand and foot, hanging over the bed in the night nursery, hanging year after year in the dark little study at Farm Street with the, with the shining oilcloth, hanging in the dark church where only the old charwoman raises the dust and one candle burns, hanging at noon high among the crowds and the soldiers, no comfort except a sponge of vinegar and the kind words of a thief, hanging forever, never the cool sepulchre and the grave clothes spread on the stone slab, never the oil and spices in the dark cave, always the midday sun and the dice clicking for the seamless coat, never the shelter of the cave or of the castle walls, outcast till in the desolate spaces where the hyenas roam at night and the rubbish heaps smoke in the daylight, no way back, the gates barred, all the saints and angels posted along the walls, nothing but bare stone and dust in the smoldering dumps. Thrown away, scrapped, rotting down, the old man with lupus and the forked stick who limps out at nightfall to turn the rubbish, hoping for something to put in his, in his sack, something marketable, turns away with disgust, nameless and dead, like the baby they wrapped up and took away before I had seen her. Between her tears, she talked herself into silence. I could do nothing. I was adrift in a strange sea. My hands on the metal-spun threads of her tunic were cold and stiff. My eyes dry. I was as far from her in spirit as she clung to me in the darkness as I was years ago when I had lit her cigarette on the way from the train station, as far as when she was out of mine in the dry, empty years of the old, refector, the old rectory and in the jungle. Tears spring from speech. Presently in the silence, her weeping stopped. She sat up away from me, took her handkerchief, shivered, rose to her feet. Well, she said in a voice much like normal, Bridie is one for bombshells, isn't he? That was long, but any any thoughts? Now, what did her what did Bridie want her to do about her first about her husband? <sighs> I don't remember. Okay. And, and, I, and I, was, I was actually Googling this the other day, and I ran about across a passage, um, I think it was written by a, a Catholic priest and scholar, so that Bridie himself is, is a bad Catholic in the sense that uh, father, the father of, of the family has fled to Italy and has had a long-term affair, um, and is at this point in the story is, is dead, having converted on his deathbed. Um, he had been 
not an atheist, but kind of a stoic English agnostic, um, but had converted on his deathbed. Um, and the, the criticism of Bridie as a character is that, and this, is, this kind of has some moralism to it, but it, it makes a point that he's the oldest son, and certainly in keeping with the, the, the attitude of the times, he should have said, I'm now head of the household, at least in keeping with English tradition for, for his social class, and he doesn't. He, he lives at the home, um, but he kind of stays off in his own area. He collects something, maybe antique buttons, something ridiculous like that. And it, the point being, he's kind of, to, to use a term we often use here, he's, he's, he's navel-gazing. And both in terms of responsibility to his family, uh, but also in other areas, um, he, could have, he, he had a position that really should have justified being a, a member of parliament. He could have taken on all kinds of you know, leadership roles in his family and society, and he's kind of caved in on himself, which probably makes his judgment towards his sister all the more potent, but in, in, a, in a negative sort of way. He had no moral authority with her. Whereas if he'd some, he was someone who probably lived in a, I hate to say in a better fashion, because again, there's just law hanging over all of this. Um, but had he done things differently, he probably had a better position with, with his, his sister. And, and the husband that, that she has is, is just a horrible person, um, both in the sense that he's, he's likely having affairs and he's, He's just kind of this typical, like, like you said, backgammon and cigar smoke kind of guy. Um, one of the funniest things in the movie is when he's going through his own catechism classes. Um, the famous line where the, the, past, where the, the priest who's going through it with him says, um, now how many natures would you say our Lord has? And he says, as many as you say, Father. Next question. And he's, he's just kind of running through it like, just tell me what I got to do to get confirmed, and I want to get through it. And um, the, the TV show is worth it just for that scene alone. Um, and every now and then you'll see people refer to maybe a politician who kind of says something, kind of gives this kind of Pat Anders Christianity as being a Rex Mottram character named for, for this guy in the book. Um, but that's Bridie's attitude is that he's, he's kind of nitpicking. Um, now, I mean, in keeping with, with devout Catholicism, this would be a problem for Julia, but she's, she, is, she has um, clearly kind of moved, moved away from her faith and the faith of her childhood. I mean, what's happening here, I don't know that she necessarily feels guilt over, I think it's interesting that Waugh takes this position too, she's not necessarily feeling guilt over the fact that she married a guy who'd been divorced years ago. She's absolutely feeling guilt over having taken up with, with Charles, and even though they are clearly in love with one another. And in that con, there's a sense in which the relationship has a certain purity to it because they truly are in love with one another. And they're both perfectly happy, but Bridie reminds both of them, you both have spouses. Because um, this wasn't this wasn't a one night stand. I mean, this was plain as day, like they're just shacking up there at the castle. Um, and you know that, that 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 raises an interesting question in terms of how should he have actually handled the sensitivity of that? Um, I don't know. I think I know what I would do in that case. I'm not a hundred percent sure. Um, but clearly, it, it, almost in a Flannery O'Connor sense, where the, the the act of grace is in its own way brutal, because he's being a real jerk here. Um, but what it does is it brings her to this breaking point where she is fully aware of, of her own condition uh, and, and how that has both brought her into relationships with other people, however negative, but how it's also estranged her. She talks about her mother carrying her sin around and, and, and that, that is a point of grief and how it's completely estranged her from her family. Um, the, uh, the English actress Diana Quick played Julia in the original TV series and 
you can look this up. I think if you go, if you get on YouTube and you look up Brideshead and the phrase "living in sin," this will be the first video that pops up, and it's just magnificent. It's brilliant acting, um, but it really, really drives on the point. We watched this a couple of summers ago, um, and I remember watching that. We were watching it at night after after Jack was in bed, and it was one of those moments. Where you're watching a TV show and your jaw kind of drops a little bit. Uh, it was you know TV's not supposed to be that good, even a made-for-TV kind of series. And it was just phenomenal. Um, and it, because it does convey, and especially for a believer, it conveys what the author intended it to get to, which was this is where sin leaves you. And this, is, this is the doorstep it drops you off at. And, and she's at this moment of, of, of complete and utter despair. Um, and you see that disconnect where she, I mean, she's saying, you know, I mean, obviously in this notion of sin, I mean, she's, she's nailing that she's disconnected from God. But she's also disconnected from everybody around her, and there is this guy who 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 is, um, you could in in modern parlance, her soulmate, her certainly her lover, who and they're they're making plans to divorce their both of their spouses and get married. I mean, they are they want to fully start the future together. He's saying, I've, I'm completely distant from her, and the reference to lighting her cigarette is the first day he meets her, um, when um, her brother, who is his Oxford classmate, invites him to spend. A week, or maybe even just a weekend at their at their manor, and she picks him up, and she's this dashing, you know, young lady with, you know, a mink fur and you know a long cigarette, you know, something, you know, something straight out of out of a movie, and um, he's completely transfixed fire at the time, um, if, in a physical sense, if not an emotional sense, but he's saying, yeah, I didn't know her; she was a stranger to me, and she completely feels like a stranger right here, and and the reason for that is is both her realization of of her sin. And perhaps probably his own. I mean, that's the underlying thing here. Is he's starting to realize we've, we've, we've crossed into an area that we ought not have gone. And now that we're there, we, we don't know each other anymore. Um, all that bringing it back to Paul is apart from Christ. This is, this is where we are. Right. Essentially, I guess that's a crucifix. That's right. Hanging, I'm sure. You know that through through this end, Christ is still. I mean, he's present. Right. But until I guess my question would be. I don't know what my question is. <laughs> that's the one part that stood out to me is that she was very aware that she that Christ had been there. Right. You know, from I guess infancy. Right. And. And now she's coming kind of this realization of, would this be kind of her beginning of her, I don't know. Her coming back. Yeah. Yeah. What in Baptist parlance, her rededication. <laughs> yeah, no, I think so, because she's saying, in, 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 in keeping, you know, I mean, we, we, today was a baptismal service here. This sense of, from the beginning, this is, I was marked as Christ. You know, I had the I had the class I had the catechism with the nanny who was she's kind of the Catholic hero of the of the book is their their nanny who is at this point a very aged woman still alive who you know I this I was raised in the faith I know better I know what Christ ha- has done for me and all of that kind of yeah it was there um, to keep with another Catholic writer you know as, as Tolkien said in Lord of the Rings still kind of there in the shadows kind of trailing along all those years. Um, Right, and that her arrogant brother, being a total jerk, was in fact, you know, Christ working 
yeah, it was that revelation that kind of comes in a, in a brutal fashion. Kind of like in Flannery O'Connor's book, Revelation, where the, 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 uh, the very arrogant woman who is kind of priding herself on not being white trash, if you hear that story, she's sitting in the doctor's office priding herself on being white trash, and this really arrogant kind of bratty university student throws a book at her and actually attacks her. Um, and then, you know, she still doesn't kind of get it until she goes home and has this vision of a carnival freak show processing into heaven, and she's at the back of the line. Um, and she starts to realize it. And I guess I, 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 I struggle with even writing that, you know, kind of writing this down. To sum it up very well is, is kind of a struggle, and we're kind of getting, getting on in, in, in time, that that's where we are. But like her, you know, her image of Christ hanging on the wall, there's, there, is, there is an absolute solution. And, and Paul says it there in the very first verse that through faith we have peace with God. And that the, the, the reality of Christ's death and resurrection has, from the long view, has absolutely ended that strife and that disconnect between us and God and potentially between us and everybody with whom we come in contact. Um, now, how that works out on a daily basis, um, Martin Luther had an awful lot to say about that. And I'll actually want to talk about that next week. Um, but from the long view, for, whether for us and for Julia here, the, the, the reality of our sin is, is deep and it is great and it is, it is a grave situation, but we can look to the cross and know that the, the disconnect between us and God, um, the actual conflict, the war between us and God, our sinfulness and his holiness has in fact been solved. It has been, you know, peace has been spoken into that situation and that there is no, you know, as Paul goes on to say, there is no condemnation. Um, you know, God is no longer, God's wrath has been permanently, permanently satisfied. Uh, going back to joy to the world, far as the curse is found, which was deep and it was you know, rooted within every human heart, that is over with. Um, and that's the joy of Christmas, and I don't mean to harp on that, you know, eight weeks down the line. You know, that's what we're celebrating on Christmas Eve, is that, um, that, that God's wrath has been permanently satisfied. Now, how that, again, how that works on a daily basis is, is much harder. And, and, in fact, Paul goes on to talk in those later verses there about um, the, the, the idea that, that Luther talked about his imputation, about how our, God's righteousness becomes our righteousness. And um, ostensibly, that's where I'm going next time. So if you're interested, please return. But uh, any final thoughts? I know time is about to get away from us. All right, well, thank you very much. See you all next week.